This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we ask God to open our hearts and our minds to his word and for him to speak to us through his word and his spirit. Father, we are honored to stand in your presence this morning. Lord, there are so many here that have sacrificed much to preserve the freedoms that you've given our country. Their families have sacrificed much, and we thank you for their honorable service and the, the lives that they have devoted both to our country and to you. Now, Lord, as we go to your word and we look at a, a short story that we find there, I will ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, and Lord, that we would see your son and that he would be lifted up and magnified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. As I was praying and thinking about what to, to preach on this morning, um, I realized there would probably be people from the different branches, and so I began to think, you know, what text should I preach from? And um, I had trouble finding texts that didn't really basically refer to the army. Um, There's a few Old Testament texts that had reference to Navy. Uh, Jehoshaphat built a Navy, but it got wrecked. So that probably wasn't a good example. Um, <clears throat> there, was, um, there was Jonah, right? But they threw him out of the ship and then he got swallowed by the well. So that wasn't a real, that wasn't a good one. Um, I thought about maybe Air Force, um, but the only example I could find of of anything other than angels flying was Elijah, but that was a flaming chariot. I don't think the Air Force really likes their stuff to be on fire, so that didn't really work. Um, so uh, I, as, so I, um, I, I decided I was going to have to just go with a soldier. Um, and I, the, ex- the passage the Lord led me to is probably, for many of you that, that know your Bibles well, kind of self-evident, but it is Acts chapter 10. And I want us to look at a man who... Probably many of us here, especially those of you that have served a while or are veterans, uh, can probably identify with. There's a man named Cornelius. And he, uh, we're going to look at him. We're going to uh, look at his life a little bit. Who is this man, Cornelius? And we'll find as we go through it that he, while a good man, while, as we'll see, he, he was still missing something. And we're going to look at what that was. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses here. Acts chapter 10, one, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming to him saying, and saying unto him, Cornelius. When he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou ought to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto him, he sent him to Joppa. Now, who is this man, Cornelius? Well, it tells us he was a centurion. And we can actually learn quite a bit just from that statement. So Cornelius, if he was a centurion, it meant he was a professional soldier. He wasn't just doing a few years and getting out. It meant he had served for a number of years. It meant he had been to battle. It meant his appointment had been approved by the emperor. Only about 90, best we can tell from history, only between 90 and 100 centurions were approved every year. And while they were recommended by the local command, they had to go, the, the approval process went to Rome and they had to be signed off on by the emperor. They had to have been in battle. They had to exemplify the characteristics of a soldier and have done it for a period of time. And so this man was a professional soldier. In addition, centurions had a pretty high mortality rate because they wore a very distinctive helmet that allowed their soldiers to recognize them in battle. It also allowed the enemy to recognize them. 
And that fact, and the fact that Cornelius had survived to an age where he had a house and a family were indicators that he was very good at what he did. Um, as I have said, he, was, he had been to battle. He had commanded legionaries and he had killed men. He had stood in the front lines. He knew what it was to have blood on his hands and he had probably seen friends die next to him. And yet, despite all of this, it appears that he was respected both by his men and his friends, but also by the land they were occupying, by the Jews of that area. And so this was a man who was a professional soldier. He was a man of honor, and he was respected. He was a family man. He was a native of Italy. That's when it, when it says the Italian band, it meant that this, this band of soldiers, doesn't give us the exact size, um, had been raised in Italy and deployed to Palestine. These deployments were often quite, they were indefinite uh, until the need was deemed um, taken care of, whatever the problem was they'd been sent there to deal with. And so the soldiers were then often discharged at the end of their period of service from the location in which they'd been deployed. And they would be, um, if, if they needed more, they would bring more from the location where they were originally raised. Um, because these assignments were so long, the, the, legion, um, the, the centurions and the officers above them were often allowed to take their families, but usually it would have been at their own expense. And so Cornelius, if this is the case, this is what had happened. Cornelius had valued his family and their presence enough that he had sacrificed quite a bit of money financially to get them to Palestine. And so he was a man who valued family. Cornelius was a devoutly religious man. That's how we're introduced to him in verse 2. He is a devout man and one of feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the poor, to the people, and prayed to God always. His time in Israel had allowed him to observe and learn the Jewish faith, and he had come to believe in the God of the Bible, in the God of Israel. And this would have been a major step for a Roman who was raised to believe in the Roman gods. Um, in addition, the Roman military um, had, um, had raised a cult, they called it the, the military cult, and it was they worshipped a particular god, and they had a number of ceremonies that went through it. And most men who rose in the ranks beyond simple legionnaire would have been involved in this. I don't know if Cornelius was or not, but it's very possible. At least he would have been exposed to it. But he had turned to God, and he feared God. It says he understood who Jehovah was and believed him to be the one true God. He had sought to orient his life and practice around the commands and teachings of Scripture. He was a man of prayer. The, the text says he prays, um, prayed always, or always, and this um, uh, it says to God always. The indication was probably he only prayed to God, but it also carries a sense that he prayed a lot. And you actually have him in prayer at the ninth hour, which would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon. And so he would have, in the middle of his workday, he had taken time out to pray, to spend time in prayer. And so it shows that he had a habit of prayer that extended throughout the day. Uh, he gave to the needy. His religion went beyond personal practices in his home and extended out to actually making a difference in the lives of the people in his community. Let me be very clear. Cornelius was someone we all would have respected and admired. In a community, a smaller community like this, he would have been well known as a devout man, as a religious man. He was a seeker of truth. He was on some sort of spiritual journey. Many that I meet or have met in the military or who are veterans um, fit this description. They have been exposed to, many of them, realities that the person who is, has never served in the military perhaps is, struggles to comprehend. I regularly will sit with people in my office and will <clears throat> listen to them tell about things that they have seen or done or experienced. And it, it is hard to imagine someone who could come through some of those things and still be as normal as these guys are. And many of them would describe themselves as seekers. They are seeking someone or something they recognize that they're missing something. And Cornelius had recognized that fact. He knew there was something missing in his life. 
he recognized the insufficiency of what he knew, but what I believe he had not yet realized was that he wasn't so searching for something, he was searching for someone. And God heard his prayers. God heard his request, and so he sent Peter to tell him of the one that he needed to meet. And that was Jesus. In Acts 4.12, we're told that there is not salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. The Bible is very, very clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to God's presence, to eternal life. And so let's look at this passage of scripture now. We're going to look at a portion of sermons, of, I'm sorry, of Peter's sermon and what he had to say about Jesus. Go ahead and turn now to verse 34. Now there is, we're skipping a number of verses as we, Peter um, wasn't quite ready to go to the Gentiles. He was still very bound to the Old Testament laws, not fully understanding that he had been freed from those by Christ. And so he, God had to send an angel to him and speak to him in a vision before he realized, I can go to this Roman centurion's house and I can enter that house as a Jew and I can tell him of Jesus and I won't be doing anything wrong. And so that is what much of this passage covers. And so Peter arrives in um, verse uh, 24 and 25 and, and Cornelius is waiting for him. Cornelius has gathered his whole family. He's gathered all his friends. Anyone that he thinks might be receptive to whatever he's about to hear, he doesn't know yet. All he knows is God said, send somebody to get this guy, Peter, and when he gets there, listen. That's all he had. And Cornelius listens. He's ready. And so um, Peter asks, why am I here? You know, he, Peter's a little confused. And, um, and Cornelius tells the story. Four days ago, I was praying, and an angel comes to me and says, send, send for Peter. So I did. So there, here we are. You know, this is Cornelius. And so Peter gets up in verse 34. That's kind of our introduction. And he says, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing and all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that he which was ordained of God is to be the judge of the quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. <clears throat> you see, this message, short message, just five or six verses, that Peter preaches was what Cornelius needed. It was, it was the introduction to this person that he had never met. Man and God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I want to look at a couple of truths we see in this passage that teach us about Christ. First of all, in, um, in verse 36, it says, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. Jesus, and only Jesus, brings peace to the troubled. I work with a lot of soldiers who are troubled. 
Sometimes it's because of their, how they grew up and some of the struggles they have encountered. A couple of years ago, I had a, a Bible study I was doing in the barracks um, for our soldiers, and <clears throat> I had about 12 to 15 young 18 to 21 year olds come in most weeks and my wife and I would bring in a home cooked meal and uh, we'd do a little icebreaker game with them and then we'd I'd throw some question out there just random question you know um, who's what's your favorite sports team and why right and and just something to get them talking you know and uh, sometimes the questions were a little deeper than others um, and uh, we uh, like I think one of them was you know top three things on your bucket list, you know, and, and, and why, you know, and, and it was interesting to hear some of the things that they said, and, and I don't remember exactly what question I threw out this particular time. My wife, it was the first time my wife had actually been able to come, and I think I'd been doing it about six months at this point, and so I, you know, I, I threw this question out there, whatever it was, but it's something to do with upbringing or where you grew up or family or something, and these, um, these young people were sitting there, and, and uh, they were, they were talking and discussing it, and um, I realized as they began describing their homes that of the 12 to 15 young people sitting there, only two came from homes where there was a mother and a father. And the rest of these young people came from broken homes or homes that had never had, they'd never known a parent. A number of them had never known their father. And, and my heart was broken for them realizing how hurt how much they were hurting and I had one of the young men had come by my office just a few days earlier and we had talked for a number of of um, minutes probably an hour hour and a half and he expressed how dissatisfied he was with the life he was living which is not which is not a, a healthy one it was very immoral and but he recognized the emptiness of it and he said how how do I find something more permanent? And I was able to share the gospel with him. And he, uh, he, he said, I, I, I need to think about this. That's, I, you know, and he, he wasn't re ready to receive the gospel. And I just shared with him, you know, some practical things about how he was living. And he, one of the things he was talking about was wanting to start a family and to have a wife and to have children and, and a, a solid home. But he said, I can't find someone that would has those same priorities and after because of what he'd already said I, I I said well where are you looking and he he looked at me like what do you mean you know I said well where are you looking for this person that would share your values as your 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 goals and stuff and you know after a minute he said well you know bars parties you know like where else do you meet people and and, and, I, and, and at the time, it was a little humorous, you know, and, and you say, well, have you thought about a church, you know, or um, you know, even like somewhere like people that, you know, work with charities and things like that. Like, it seems like they might share a little more in common with what you're talking about. And it, it had never occurred to him that you, would, you could meet someone anywhere else. Like, that's how just far from having a, a healthy understanding of life this young man was. He was one of the older guys in the group uh, that I was doing. So anyway, fast forward back to this Bible study and the young man, um, one of the young men made some comment about how, how, you know, I was almost like a dad to them, you know, and I kind of chuckled and, and then that older guy um, looks over at me and he looks at me for a second and he says, you know, he's right. You're our dad now. And, and that was kind of my reaction. You know, I chuckled a little bit, you know, and and he said, no, 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 you don't understand. You're the closest thing most of us have ever had to a dad. And all we did was bring in a home-cooked meal and teach him about the Bible. These were some very troubled young men and women. They were hurting. <clears throat> and what they needed to realize is what all of us needs to realize is only Jesus brings peace to the troubled. He is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He is called the Prince of Peace means he rules it he has it and only he can give it it says the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end his peace the peace that comes only from him is bottomless it is endless and it can be there and greater than anything you might experience in your daily life or in war or anywhere else 
Jesus brings peace to the troubled. When he left, when he arose and when he ascended, shortly before that, shortly before his death, actually, in John 17, John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. You know, you can find moments of calm or peace in the world, but it won't last. And I, I'm in the airborne community. That means that for $150 a month, we will jump out of a perfect good airplane. Um, and uh, so people, uh, I saw something the other day. Um, it, was, uh, it was, you know, one of those memes or whatever. And it had this person who's in the Air Force. Air Force was telling one of these Army guys on a plane something like, sit down, you know, don't touch anything. And the one Army guy looks at the other Army guy and goes, why is this stewardess yelling at us? And <laughs> anyway, um, so the, the airborne does have, they kind of think of themselves as, as special. Um, they jump out of very, you know, for no good reason, we jump out of perfectly good airplanes. <laughs> Just, um, <clears throat> but, you know, that why, why do some of them do that? And actually some of them do it because in, in the rush and the adrenaline of that experience, for a few moments, they can forget about the things that bother them and have just a few moments of calm, and they're looking for peace. And if you do not know Jesus today, whatever peace you have found or are seeking, you will only find it to last in Jesus. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But in addition to Jesus being the Prince of Peace, the one who gives peace, he also heals the oppressed soul. When Jesus was, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. You know, oppressed is a really good term for a lot of the young men and women who come through my office. And for a lot of people that have served, um, it's a good term. Many who have been in combat don't like to talk about it. A lot of the young people I say, you know, my, my uncle or my grandfather or my someone, my dad, you know, he, he, he went through combat or he got shot at, but he won't talk about it. And they look for, they're, they're oppressed, they're beaten down. Um, they, they have troubles that are overwhelming their soul. It's overwhelmed their skills or their knowledge or their coping mechanisms. They may be trying to drown their sorrows in a bottle or looking for other chemical stimulants to help them forget about what they've experienced to dampen the fear or the guilt or whatever else that they are experiencing. And what they don't realize is that they need healing and that only Jesus can give it. Jesus heals the oppressed soul. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, when Jesus makes a promise, he doesn't break it. He says, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That term heavy laden literally means to be beaten down. To be weighed down, pushed down so hard that you feel like you can't hold it up any longer. And Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Jesus heals the oppressed souls. <clears throat> Jesus is the only one in the miracle business and that's what we need. <clears throat> I was at a, a, some training earlier this week. Uh, it was a combination training between the army chaplain Core and Duke Divinity School, and they were dealing with something called moral injury. Essentially, what it is is you experience something, um, usually in a in a high stressful, highly stressful situation, and and you feel guilt over it. It violates your deeply held moral beliefs. There's some I, there's somewhere in your head you're thinking we should have been better than this. You may not have actually committed the action; you may have seen it committed. You may have 
committed it, or you may have even had it committed against you. But it, it, it creates a sense of guilt. And as many of you know, guilt does not get better with time. It gets worse. <clears throat> because of the, um, the highly high-pressure scenario of trauma that combat could, can create, uh, it's, it's very much exacerbated in that environment. And you'll see it in, in the military, especially combat operations. You also see it often in law enforcement, other lethal force communities, um, <clears throat> where they'll experience this. And we're recognizing just how much of an issue it is, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. And so we're, they're trying to, to talk and figure out, like, how do we, how do we get after this? And, and we're recognizing what the Army is recognizing is, you know, psychologists can't help because they don't do guilt. Right? That's not, that's not within their purview. They're not even allowed to deal with it. The only people that have any kind of knowledge of how to deal with guilt are chaplains. But ironically, there was a chaplain up there, and he said, um, he said he went to combat, and he said, the re he said, my theology was not equipped to deal with the realities of combat. I thought it was a very sad indictment on his theology. Because... Jesus heals the oppressed soul. He is perfectly equipped to deal with those kind of issues and that kind of struggle. And it was very sad to see these people up here on the, on the pulpit or on the stage that were, um, they were doing panels and they were the supposed experts on some of these issues and the PhDs and all of that. And so few of them knew Jesus. And so their answers were very confused. Many of them had more questions than answers. <clears throat> and so this, what, but what we find here and what Cornelius was learning was that Jesus is the only one who can give lasting peace and he is the only one that can truly heal the oppressed soul. But then third, we find that Jesus and Jesus alone can atone for the sinful. <clears throat> If you look at verse, the second half of verse 39 and verse 40, we are witnesses of all things which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him op openly. Here we have the account, a very brief one, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If you would, keep your finger here and briefly go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. There's a little more here, and I think it, um, it will help us just kind of take this apart and kind of ask ourselves perhaps some questions about what it was that Jesus was doing. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So Paul is telling them, look, I simply told you what I received myself and here's what he said. He says, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so we, need, we read these verses um, both in, in Acts 10 and 1 Corinthians 15, and we need to ask ourselves a few questions. Why did Jesus die for our sins? What, what did he have to do with that? What was, what was this whole thing about? And then if you break it down a little bit, so he died for what? Well, he died for sin. So what is sin? Well, 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. We don't use the word transgression very often, um, but it simply means to break. Transgression is simply the breaking of God's law. <clears throat> now, um, I, I remember a very distinct example of this um, when I was in airborne school. Um, in 2006, so a few years ago, and uh, I was a very, very, very green, brand new second lieutenant. Now, for all of those that have served, you know what that, well, served in the Army, you know what that means. Now, what's the, um, Tavis, what's the equivalent in the Navy? Um, ensign, right, so think brand new ensign for most of you, right? Um, as green as they could be, and I was a direct commission, which means I didn't even own a uniform, and they swore me in as a lieutenant, and then they said, okay, we're going to show you how to be one. Okay, so normally it's the, they give you a uniform, they teach you a little bit, and then you become a lieutenant. For me, it was the opposite. So it was, it was bad. And um, then I get there to airborne school, and they're like, oh, you're an officer. You're in charge of this group of 30 soldiers. 
<laughs> oh, by the way, we don't have an NCO to give you. You're just going to be on your own on this one. Fortunately, there was another second lieutenant there who had been an NCO previously, and he kept me out of a lot of trouble. But we had one young man in our group that had an attitude against all authority. Now, he had just come from Army Infantry Basic Training. You would have think they'd have worked it out of him, but they hadn't. And now he is at Airborne School, and he is, well, to use, to use an, uh, a, a term, a soup sandwich. He is a mess, and he has a problem if you correct him. Well, so, and here, let me explain how things worked in Airborne School 15 years ago. It's changed a little bit since then. Um, back then, if one person was 30 seconds late, everybody got smoked on the gravel. And it wasn't like, hey, do 10 push-ups, like now, that's the limit they can make you do. No, no, no. 450 four flutter kicks later, we got back up, and then we went and did PT, right? That was, that was how they dealt with things. So after one person, he was that person, decided to show up late, and the entire formation of almost 400 people got smoked, we made very sure he was on time. <clears throat> but he would show up without his ID card. Now, in airborne school, you're allowed to have two, three things on your person, and you must have those three things. You must have your ID card, you must have your ID tags, and you must have your contain. You may not have anything else of, of any other personal item. You must wear, and you, that's your uniform, and that's it, and those three items. And he would show up without things. He's like, how hard is this, man? Three things. We'd send him back inside to get it. Well, the, the, the black hats, since we all the guys that are the airborne instructors, because they wear black baseball caps, they would be standing right outside the door of the barracks, which there's the area that we did our training in was right in front of the barracks. And, and so the guy would, you know, run inside, and they would watch him run inside, and you could tell that their wheels start, what is he doing, you know? And so he'd come back out, and he'd come running back over to us, and they'd watch him come running over to us. And we knew, we figured out very quickly, if they didn't see some corrective training, they would come and do it. It would be way worse, way worse. So we would be like, hey, do 10 push-ups and get back in line, and that way we did corrective training, right? And now, in airborne school, 10 push-ups is like, you know, that's like what you do to get, in fact, you have to do more than that to go eat breakfast, okay? Like, literally, you, you get 25 push-ups, five chin-ups, now you can go inside to eat breakfast. That's how you earn breakfast. So it was 20, 10 push-ups was nothing. But do 10 push-ups so we don't all get smoked. And he would give us attitude over this. We're like, dude, don't you understand? We're helping all of us, you included. He wouldn't listen. Well, anyway, we go through the first two weeks of airborne school. Now we're in jump week. We're actually going to jump out of planes. Well, for safety reasons, they can't smoke you during jump week, right? Because if you get, if you're too tired and then you exit wrong and you get hurt or something, then they get in trouble. So they said, well, and everybody knew this, right? But nobody was stupid enough to take, try and take advantage of it, except for this guy. <clears throat> We're getting ready for our last jump, right? It starts raining. It's a night jump, the combat loads. It's a little more, you know, a little more scary, a little more technical. And uh, <clears throat> it starts raining just about ready to get on the plane. And so they say, all right, go back inside. Now understand, we've, we've been in these harnesses all day, right? We're miserable. Everybody needs to use the bathroom. We're like, just get us there. And then, <clears throat> well, he just, and, and the first sergeant distinctly said, don't take off your harnesses, leave them on, right? No sooner, and he's on like a microphone, like there's no way to miss it, right? No sooner we get back inside, guess what this guy does? Drops everything, runs out the door, to go to use a latrine, you know? And I didn't even have to look. Like, I heard one of the, the drill sergeants start screaming, and I knew who it was. I didn't have to look. I just knew it. And, of course, I'm the guy in charge of him, so you know who's going to come back to bite. And so first sergeant comes running over. LT, did you tell him? No, I did not. <laughs> I really didn't. He said, all right. Okay, I got you. He walks off. They're screaming at the guy, but the guy knows he can't do anything to him, so he just does what he wants. <clears throat> and uh, we, so we go jump, get on the ground, hike back, get accountability, we got about 10 minutes till the buses leave, and they've got a whole line of Porter Johns over against the tree line. So I'm like, hey, if you need to use the latrine, go, right? So we'll be back here in five minutes. Everybody scatters. Five minutes later, I check my watch. Okay, everybody's back. I was, because I was a platoon leader, I was allowed to have a watch. Literally, I was the only person allowed to have a watch in our platoon. Um, we get back, and this guy's gone. Nowhere to be found. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, we're in the middle of a training area. There's nowhere to go. Like, we're in Alabama, and, and I'm not kidding you, you jump on the other side of the river. So we jump in Alabama, and you have to, like, get back to the barracks is in Georgia, right? Like, it's a long way back. Like, what, where could he have gone? There's nowhere to go out here. Can't find this guy. Now I'm thinking I've lost a soldier. 
Like, it was a bad night. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning at this point, and we're all exhausted. So I finally go to the NCOIC of the drop zone. I'm like, uh, Black Hat, I'm really, I don't know. And I explained, this guy's missing. I said, we had initial accountability. One of the other guys checked me on it. Like, I don't know where he went. And he's like, don't worry about it. He probably just jumped on an earlier bus. Get back. I was like, all right. So we get back. Can't find him when you get back. <laughs> oh, my word. And uh, so finally, I'm like, I got to tell the first sergeant, right? So I walk over, and the first sergeant is like up in this balcony thing, like, like a story and a half up. Who, anybody here airborne? Just so I, anybody else? Okay, so you, you know, I'm not repeating anything for anybody. All right, so there's this upper balcony, right? And the first sergeant's up there, and he's got his PA system and everything. He's yelling at us, get the place cleaned up, get it all policed up so we can leave, go back to the barracks. And <clears throat> so I walk over, and I, first sergeant, he's like, what do you want, LT? And uh, I said, roster number such and such, I explain what happened. I can't find him. He, I see, like, the color start to rise, you know. You lost a soldier, LT, you know. And, like, I, I, I heard, I mean, like, I, heard, I saw him stop, like, the words that were about ready to come out of his mouth. Like, he was ready to start just screaming at me. It's the last jump. Like, we just want to go home tonight, right? And then nobody, if we've lost a soldier on the last jump, you know. And then all of a sudden he stops himself. He says, what was that roster number again, LT? I told him. And he does this number. Oh, Lieutenant, don't worry about it. I got this. He'd driven out and picked the guy up. Because after the fifth jump, jump week was over. But he still owns that guy for two more days. <clears throat> it was a bad day for that young man. <clears throat> the first sergeant had him do every calisthenic known to man for two hours straight. <laughs> well, he just stood there. Because he had nowhere to go. He had to wait until everybody's done. So this guy is just sitting there up in the balcony, just, you know, for two hours. So now it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. They send him, put him on shoot shakeout detail. Well, remember it had rained? So these are these huge silk parachutes. They're wet. They're sandy. You have to hang them up in this, this big room with this, these, you know, things that go up and down, and they shake all the sand and the dirt out, and they have to let them dry overnight, and they weigh, you know, like 40 pounds, 50 pounds each. You know, they're super heavy. They have to drag them all in out of the, um, <clears throat> out of the trailer, and there were 375 guys that graduated, so you, and that's... And we jumped twice that day, so over 700 parachutes, and there were, about, there were about 30 or 40 guys on the detail, so you can imagine how long that took. So whenever they finished that, it was probably 3 or 4 or 5 in the morning, I don't know. I was in bed by that point. Um, then they put him on CQ duty. He was on guard duty until 10 o'clock the next morning when we had formation. And they said, if you fall asleep, you'll go back to day one. you do the whole thing over again. And apparently, he stayed awake because he graduated with us. But you know, his attitude sure changed. <clears throat> it really did. He finally lost that chip on his shoulder. But you know, uh, that soldier transgressed the commandment of the first sergeant. Right? Man, the first sergeant said, don't touch your equipment. By the way, as a jump master, that's a lawful order, no matter your rank. Right? He said, don't touch your equipment. And the guy did. He transgressed a lawful order. <clears throat> now that's a somewhat humorous example but God's commands are a whole lot more serious. And he has a whole lot more authority than that first sergeant. And he says, don't break my law. The Bible tells us that all have sinned, Romans 3.23. We've all broken God's law. You know, ultimately, folks, that's why we don't have peace. That's ultimately why we have oppressed souls. It's because we've transgressed God's law. We've broken his law. <clears throat> and it says that we've come short of the glory of God. That's his standard. The perfection of God, that's his standard. He says, be ye therefore perfect as I am perfect. That's a very high standard. The highest. We talk about high standards in the military. You get into some units and the standards are really high. And I'm about ready to go to the 82nd Airborne. Pray for me. Um, they like to think they have the highest standards and they do some, sometimes they do things just to prove they're tougher than everybody else. And so, but, you know, it's our sin. Ultimately, it's sin we've committed. And we could, there's a, we could start with the Ten Commandments and go through those. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can you honestly say that you've done that? You've loved God more than anything or anyone else your entire life? <clears throat> he says, thou shalt not kill. And you say, well, specifically murder, right? So I've never murdered anybody. But then Jesus tells us if you've been angry at your brother without cause, without just cause, you're guilty before the judgment. 
<clears throat> well, I've never, I've, I've, he says, don't commit adultery. I haven't done that. The Bible tells us that if you look at someone and lust after them in their heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. And God tells us he sees the heart. We can only look on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. It says his word is a, it's like a two-edged sword. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, God can see our thoughts. He knows our motives. What we do on the outside may look really, really good to everybody else, but we, he knows why we did it. And he can judge motives. I can't judge your motives. I don't know what you're thinking, but God can, and he does. <clears throat> so but what about, what about this? He says he died and was buried. He, wh- he died for our sins, 1 Corinthians. Um, that in 1 Corinthians, what he says. Well, why death? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, right in the same verse that he tells us the wages of sin is death, right? Wages, that's what you get paid for doing something, right? I remember as a kid getting a job delivering penny savers, right? And I think I started out at five cents a paper, right? I thought I was rolling in it, you know, my four and a half dollars a week or whatever it was. Um, but it was four and a half dollars more than I'd had the week before, you know? And uh, and 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 I I would get that paycheck, you know, and I'd carry those I had two big satchels right one for each side and I I figured out you had to alternate papers sides because if you didn't you'd you know end up after a couple houses you'd be you know walking sideways and so you know um but I was I was working hard and so I got a paycheck right as a 12 year old right I'm getting this paycheck and that was what I earned and if I hadn't got that I'd have been upset rightly so and even though the guy that was paying me was, you know, a lot older than me and everything else, <clears throat> I could have rightly said, that's my money, and I could have gone in and demanded it. And if he didn't pay it, I could have, I could have sought justice for that, right? Because I earned that $4.50. Well, folks, the Bible says that the wages, what we justly earn by our sin, is death, right? <clears throat> And there's no way around that. And folks, death lasts forever, right? If you owe a debt, right, the period at which that debt is paid off, you're no longer in debt. So if it takes forever, if death lasts forever, that means it takes forever to pay for our sin. <clears throat> but Jesus, it says, rose from the dead after three days. You know what that tells us? He paid for all the sin right? It's that simple, right? All of it. You say, well, maybe you say, well, do you, do you know what I've done? No, I don't. But Jesus does. In fact, he knew what you were going, those sins that you've committed. He knew what you were going to commit before you were even here. He died 2,000 years ago, and he already knew the sins he was paying for. So if you say, well, you don't know what's happened. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been, what I've experienced. No, I don't, but God does. And he still sent Jesus to die for you. And he rose again. It's all been paid for. In fact, the last words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. He was saying it was all paid for. He had already suffered enough. When he rose from the dead, he proved it. Now, Jesus gave a lot. He gave his life to save us from our sin. And here in Acts chapter 10, Jesus, it says, is the judge of the quick and the dead. Now, the quick means the living and the dead. You see, one day, every person is going to stand before Jesus. Now, because he lived as a man, and he was gone through all the struggles and the experiences that we deal with categorically, He's, he can justly stand and no one can say, you don't understand. No one will be able to tell Jesus the judgment day, well, you don't know what I went through. You don't know how hard it was. You don't know what I had to deal with. Because Jesus can say, no, I actually do. I do understand. I do know. 
And I still loved you so much that I died for you. The Bible tells us that we will be without excuse on that day. See, Jesus is not just the Savior, but he's also the judge. He doesn't want to condemn anyone. In fact, he didn't want to condemn anybody so much that he gave his own life to provide a way of escape. He's lived perfectly as a man so that no one will be able to say he is not a fair and unbiased judge. He did everything necessary to pay for the sin debt so that sin, so any sin that a person retains is theirs to be judged for. Finally, Jesus gives forgiveness of sins. It says that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. I want to ask you a question. How well do you know Jesus? Looked at who he is, what he he gives and his offering. Do you know him well enough to have placed your faith in him and what he did on the cross for you? He says, believe in him. What is he talking about there? What does that mean, believe in him? Well, we have a lot of different terms we use for belief, right? And one of the ones we probably all heard, you know, is, well, George Washington, right? We, we believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. He was the general of the Continental Army, right? <clears throat> he was the commander-in-chief. We all know he lived, and we, we believe that, right? None of us, I don't think anybody here is old enough to met him, I'm assuming, right? Um, so none of us have met him, but we all know he was the first president. We believe that. We would agree on that. We're not depending on him for anything. We're not trusting in him for something. It's just a fact that we acknowledge, right? But what God is calling for, this belief that God is calling for him is is dependence. It's dependence on him and him alone to save us from our sins. I recently went through a course called Jumpmaster. All that means is now I can check people and make sure their, their equipment is on correctly and not going to you know, have any malfunctions when they jump out of a plane. And then I tell them when to jump out, and then I jump after, out after they're all done. Right? So it's not, it just means that hopefully there's a higher chance that everybody makes it out safely. But there's different altitudes that we jump at <clears throat> based on what we're training for or the environment. We're just training for proficiency, make sure that everybody still knows how to put on a rig and everything. We jump at around 1,500 feet, which is not that high, but it's, it's high enough to be really scary. Um, but low enough, you can still make out details on the ground, which means you can see exactly what you're going to hit if stuff doesn't open, right? It doesn't work correctly. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but when you get into combat training, especially combat, like an actual combat scenario, um, they go in much lower. Because the longer you're in the air, the better target you are. Um, And so when we jump out in combat, we jump out at 450 feet above ground level. Okay? Um, That's really, really low. (laughs) And um, in fact, it's so low that you don't have a reserve parachute. Because you won't have time to use it. All right? So we normally jump out. We've got our main on our back. We've got a reserve in the front. And you come out the plane and you're waiting. And you count in your head 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. If by 6,000 you haven't felt a jerk, you don't even look. You just pull. You just pull that reserve. Because you're not, you see, 1,500 feet still isn't that far off the ground. But when it comes to combat load or combat jump, you jump at 450 feet AGL. Well, as I said, that's not time to deploy a reserve, right? If by 6,000 seconds, or 6,000, your chute is not fully deployed, <clears throat> you won't have time to realize that something went wrong. That's how fast it happens. And <clears throat> so, on, so you put on your rig, and on the back of it, there's this yellow cord, and it's called a static line. And it runs back and forth across your, your pack tray, what covers your parachute, protects it, and, and it's, it's hooked into the top of your parachute. And there's this loop on the top of the parachute and it, it, there's, a, there's a cotton, uh, piece of cotton um, uh, webbing that, that will snap, right? And so it, it all holds on there. And it, your parachute is all very carefully wrapped and rolled underneath that pack tray. And on the end of the static line is a static line hook. And in the plane, there is a steel cable, right? Three-eighths inch cable. And that static line clips in 
and double click hooks there's like a double lock on there and it clips in and and then when you jump out the plane the the lane the static line that's connected across your chute your, your pack tray um, it, it pulls out until it's fully elongated and then it pulls the pack tray off and pulls your chute out and then when it reaches the full extension it breaks that little cotton piece and your your parachute opens and uh, it, it's pretty fail-safe, which does happen sometimes, that still fail, because um, <clears throat> there's a lot of little cords and things going on in there. But normally, very normally, pretty much all the time, it opens. <clears throat> um, and, <clears throat> and if not, as we say in one of our cadences, I've got a reserve by my side, right? But in a combat load, you don't. Combat jump, I'm sorry, you don't. <clears throat> you are putting all of your dependence, all of your faith in that static line right? That it will not malfunction. And that when you come out, it will open that chute correctly. Because that's the only chance you got. And folks, that's what it means to have faith in Jesus. That you're putting everything, all your eggs in one basket, entirely depending on him and him alone to save you from sin, death, and hell. That's what that means. There's no reserve, Right? You can't say, well, I think if I work really hard, do all these good things, and I believe in Jesus, that I'll get to heaven. Cornelius was a good man. He was doing all the right stuff. Everybody knew it and respected him. But God, essentially what God says to him is, you don't know my son. And I'm going to introduce you to him. That's what God did through Peter. You see, it's only by depending on Jesus that you can have eternal life. Cornelius was a good man by anyone's definition, but it wasn't enough. God recognized his heart and his sincerity, but said, you don't know my son. You don't know Jesus. Now, perhaps you are here today and you recognize much of yourself in Cornelius. Perhaps you've experienced battle. Perhaps you have lost people close to you. Perhaps you love and are loved by your family. Perhaps you are respected in your community or where you work. Maybe you're a seeker or a searcher, you're spiritual, religious, or even believe much of the Bible and what it teaches. I have one very simple question for you. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him well enough that you are depending on him for salvation and eternal life? Would you stand with me as we close? <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for each person that is here today. We thank you for everyone that has served our nation, the sacrifices that they have made, their families have made, the things that they have denied, and the discipline they have shown, the honor they have exhibited. And Lord, I ask that if there is someone here today that does not know Jesus, they would place their faith in him. Lord, to have given so much themselves and to go through the rest of their lives without knowing Jesus would be a great tragedy. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.